Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Here we go. Welcome to AOA. Thanks for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We hope it's a good day for you. We'll cover a lot of ground today. Todd Van Hoos, President and CEO of the Farm Credit Council, will join us. We'll talk about the ag economy, what we're seeing uh, with uh, the higher grain prices and the difference that's making. Also, what about concerns over inflation. We'll get his thoughts on that. Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council, will be with us to talk about China and doing business with China. They're buying a lot of U.S. grain, but are there some areas of concern, things to be watching for? And what about reports that China is trying to enter TPP? Where would that leave the U.S.? We'll talk about that. And we'll get an update on the condition of the wheat crop. Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat will be joining us a little bit later on. But let's start things off with Todd Neely with DTN. Todd, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Good to be here. Uh, Interesting story we've been watching in the state of Iowa. uh, Attempts to pass some biofuels legislation there. Uh, We've heard and seen support of it and opposition to it. What are you hearing? Tell us a little bit about this. Well, Mike, this is a this is a heated topic in Iowa at the moment. Um, you know, the governor of Iowa had put out a proposal back in January to mandate the use of, I should say, the sale of E15 as kind of a general uh, sale at at all gasoline stations across the state, and all of that mandate would be 11% biodiesel. Um, you know, and, and on the surface, it makes a lot of sense. Iowa is the top ethanol producer, probably the top biodiesel producer. Uh, you know, and, and the industry itself had a lot of ups and downs here in the past several years, as you well know. Um, but one of the things that's come up during this, um, a lot of the Casey, like the Casey General Stores and, and other uh, convenience store chains have come out against this, uh, claiming that it's going to cost stations uh, quite a bit of money to retrofit, you know, to E15 and, and B, uh, B11. Um, and it's kind of an interesting situation because, uh, you know, in Iowa, uh, Casey's, for instance, they sell a lot of E15. I mean, and it's a growing market. Uh, but then they've come out against this proposal at a time when, uh, you know, the state's looking to, to expand the biofuels market for its producers and its farmers. And so uh, one of the things that's come up is the fact that uh, Casey's, Come and Go, and some of these others have accepted, uh, you know, they've, they've received a lot of funds from uh, the Prime the Pump campaign, the USDA uh, program that just launched back in 2020. Uh, just to expand ethanol infrastructure at a, at a time when they're coming out against this proposal. And so um, there's a lot of different uh, different directions this thing is going, and I think it's probably not going to pass the legislature this year because they're running out of time, but uh, some of the people we talk to think that this has a chance to actually pass eventually. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Meanwhile, we're seeing more states go to some form of a low-carbon fuel standard for their states. And I I can't help but wonder, Mm -hmm. are we going to wind up with this patchwork of these types of things across the country? Wouldn't we be better maybe with a a national low-carbon fuel standard? Uh, I guess it depends on your point of view. uh, um, Right. But we'll see. But it looks like that's the direction that more and more states are going. 
Yeah, Mike, and I think, uh, you know, you're right. I think there is discussion about a national-level LCFS, but one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that it's going to vary from state to state and region to region. Uh, you know, what works in California is probably not going to work in Nebraska. And, uh, you know, it, it's really, I think you're right. I think we're going to see somewhat of a patchwork. Uh, but I think the potential is there for each region to benefit from it in some way. Um, you know, states that have, you know, high ethanol production or high bi- other biofuels production, it probably makes sense to have something tailored to what, you know, what their needs are. And so, um, you know, you can't blame, you can't blame the movement because honestly, you know, we've seen from EPA for the better part of a decade, you know, ups and downs and inconsistencies and in how the RFS has been implemented and, um, I suspect that this is the wave of the future. We're going to see more of these low-carbon fuel standards, and I think uh, there's a lot of potential there for it to benefit ag- agriculture. Well, what I guess what I'm thinking is if you could pass a national standard that maybe would set a minimum yeah. level, then, then if states wanted to come in and set even go more beyond that, they could do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I agree. I think that that could play – you know, I think the feds have a role to play in that. And, you know, we've heard some talk about that on a national level. Um, but there's a lot of things to work out in terms of uh, whether, you know, there'd be carbon markets uh, that would play into that. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff. But you're right. I, I think the national government, I think EPA could play a definite role in, in setting something, at least getting, uh, you know, getting states on a, you know, charting a path. Hey, what's the latest since they've shut down the Keystone XL pipeline project? What's going on? I mean, where's that at? And what about all those jobs that those workers were promised that they could get? Uh, have, have they been get, been able to get any jobs since they've been laid off? You know, Mark, they're not really hearing a lot about this, but you're right. It's something that, um, you know, this was a large project. It had a lot of backing. You know, you hear a lot of opposition here in Nebraska and other states that are on the route, but there was a lot of support for it. I think by and large, the public in Nebraska did support the project. Um, not really hearing about where those jobs are going, you know, um, it's really, a, it's a tough thing to say at this point. I mean, these were jobs that paid well. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, I think at some point it's going to have to be, you know, really looked at as to how the federal government looks at these projects in general. Uh, you know, the Keystone, for example, it went through a number of environmental reviews and it seemed to pass all the muster, uh, but it really comes down to whoever's in, you know, the, the administration at the time as to whether the project is uh, viewed as viable. And I think that's just kind of the way it's going to be going forward. Meanwhile, the impact of the uh, pipeline shutdown for the East Coast is still being felt, even though it's back and going, uh, there's still a lot of uh, shortages and certainly higher prices for fuel. Um, some are, have speculated this will push people more to electric vehicles. Uh, what are you hearing on that? <laughs> uh, you know, that's an interesting concept. Of, you know, I, I don't see that that's really kind of the issue here. You know, what happened with the Colonial Pipeline was a hack. Um, you know, the security the security wasn't as good as it should have been. It was The pipeline was brought down as a result. I think this was one individual story. Although I would say that, you know, by and large, I think this really has raised the bar in terms of looking at security with these pipelines. Um, If one hack can take down a pipeline, eventually uh, it's going to affect the entire country. You know, I think on this particular instance, you know, we we were kind of fortunate. We kind of dodged a bullet in the fact that Colonial was able to get up and and running quite quickly after it came down. And so 
you know, we never really saw the impact in, you know, in the Midwest and other places across the country. Although, uh, you know, maybe there's some price build up there. I, I don't know, but um, it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I, I would suspect there are other pipelines that are just as vulnerable. Yeah, should be a warning uh, that we need to uh, strengthen security on all those for sure. All right, good to talk with you, Todd. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you, Mike. Take care. Todd Neely with DTN. Up next, we'll look at the ag economy, higher commodity prices, but inflation concerns as well, concerns over tax proposals. We're going to look at all that with Todd Van Hoos, president and CEO of the Farm Credit Council, next on AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. To be the king of the road, you have to fill with the king of diesels. We're talking about Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Cenex Roadmaster XL even cleans up and prevents injector fouling to keep your trucks out of the shop and on the road. And typical number two diesel? That's always an option the wrong option. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Did you know that biodiesel reduces carbon emissions by 74% on average? It's the best option available today for states and cities across America looking to immediately cut carbon emissions. It's an important contribution from America's farmers to meeting the nation's carbon reduction goals right now. That's why we say biodiesel is better, cleaner, now. Learn more by visiting bettercleanernow.com, brought to you by the National Biodiesel Board in partnership with soybean farmers and their checkoff program. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. 
Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk about the ag economy. Joining us now, Todd Van Hoos, President and CEO of the Farm Credit Council. Todd, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Glad to be here. You know, I was just thinking, what a difference a year makes, right? If we look, here we are mid-May, and if we look back to mid-May last year, where agriculture was and where we're at now, quite a difference. It really is. I mean, you know, last year was tough. And, and, and very stressful. Ultimately, I guess if you added up the pluses and the minuses by the end of the year, it was actually turned out to be a pretty good income year, but I don't think anybody expected that until very end. And next year, again, looking like a decent income year, but there's some stress out there still, especially in the livestock and dairy. Yeah, when we think back to May of last year, we were in the pandemic and the rally hasn't hadn't started yet didn't come till like august so it was a lot tougher a year ago at this time now though we've had the rally since august which is certainly i I would imagine has helped balance sheets except maybe on the livestock side because when you're buying and having to pay the higher feed costs that that changes that scenario as you pointed out but overall how, how do you how do you how does the ag economy look to you right now we think it looks pretty strong right now. I mean, we're seeing, uh, you know, USDA has its projections out, and they're talking about a, a well above average year. And, and we're expecting when you add these past two years together, um, that's going to help recover from the previous five. Because if you think about 2015 through 2019, those were all well below average income years for most of agriculture. And, and we saw deterioration in balance sheets and, and stress on farms. And now we've had a, you know, we hope to, if this projection is true for 21, we hope to have two pretty good years and rebuild those balance sheets a little bit. But still, you know, there's still some stress out there. Those balance sheets aren't built back to where they were coming out of, say, 2013, 2014. So we think we've got a ways to go, but but good news so far, except especially in dairy, where these prices uh, feed prices are really a challenge uh, because the, the margin on the other side just isn't there. And so we're seeing some stress in dairy. On the crop side, have we seen the prices, the, this rally, has that been able to offset for the most part the higher input costs, or are we starting to see those costs starting to eat into that uh, those higher prices more and more? Well, I mean, just go fill up your tank, right? I mean, uh, it's easy to see input costs rising. Uh, So far, margins are good. So, but as you you know, everybody's talking about inflation. It's hard to predict exactly where oil prices are going to be. Most people think they're going to peak sometime July, August uh, at at 80 plus dollars a barrel. And and that's going to have an impact, impact on the input side. And so we do we do expect good income, right? Strong prices, but at the same time, expenses are going up. And the opportunity to even lock in some good prices for next year, which, you know, when you're trying to see how long is this thing going to last, at least there's that opportunity even into next year right now. 
that, that just points out the importance of, of all the risk management tools that farmers have at their disposal. The, the amazing ability to forward price, uh, all the crop insurance tools that really allow you to do that because weather's crazy. As we all know, the storms are getting stronger and they cost more and are doing more damage out there every year. But the amazing tools farmers have to be able to plan their extend their planning horizons and understand what their profitability is. You know, I, I got asked the other day, what's the big, biggest difference between farmers today and farmers 40 years ago? And, and, and the easy answer to that is just management expertise. Um, today's successful farmers are some of the best financial and operational managers around. It is an enormously complex operation that folks are trying to put together out there, balancing all the risks, all the returns, and the, and the enormous capital investment. And so today's farmers are, are well advanced over their, certainly their grandparents and parents' generation and in terms of their management expertise. These are great managers out there. We're talking with Todd Van Hoos, president and CEO of the Farm Credit Council. Todd, how concerned are you about inflation? Well, it's it's hard to know, right? We're, we are, in a lot of ways, in unprecedented territory. We've got such an active Federal Reserve uh, in intervening in the marketplace to keep interest rates down. We, we have a historically long down cycle in interest rates. Um, and now a lot of stimulus, right? The, the federal stimulus that is put in place for COVID, uh, even for, for, for 21, the expected uh, additional stimulus with an infrastructure package. So we're really in a little bit of uncharted territory. And so certainly inflation is a concern. You know, uh, the old saying, a little bit of inflation is okay. A lot's pretty bad. Uh, agriculture certainly seen that in its cycles. For now, I think it's okay, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. What do you watch? What are the indicators that uh, set off red flags for you when it comes to inflation? Well, I, you know, the, the biggest one for, for, for me is, is interest rates. I, I think we've got to see interest rates uh, stable. Interest rates are good for agriculture out there. We remain in a very low interest environment. Um, and so that helps buffet, uh, you know, helps buffet the impact a little bit of, of inflation out there. And so we'll, we'll watch that. We're also watching some of the supply chain issues because I think some of this supply, some of this inflation we're seeing right now is a supply chain issue as we try to rebuild the supply chains back from COVID inter interruptions. Uh, and and the, the crazy interruption we had on the East Coast last week with the pipeline shutdown. Um, all of that builds pricing pressure into the model. And so I think as we see some of these uh, supply chains get a little more normal, hopefully that's going to ease some of the price pressure. What are your concerns about some of the tax proposals you've seen from the Biden administration, whether it be on uh, land exchanges or stepped-up bases? What concerns you there? Well, it's all on the table, right? I mean, the capital gains, 1031s, uh, uh, the estate tax, uh, step-up basis, all of this has been put on the table. You know, I, I, give, I give the Biden administration some credit. They, 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 they're telling us, especially on the step-up basis part of this, 
on the step-up basis part of this, you know, they're they're talking about exempting 98% of agricultural operations. Now we have obviously, but but I know they're thinking about it. So I give them some credit on that. On the other hand, when you look at the tight margins in agriculture, uh, when you look at the the five or six. Um, Farmers can't afford uh, to narrow those margins for further. We really need to rebuild some balance sheets and equity out there. And so we're hopeful that, that common sense will prevail and that we'll have a, 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 a tax system that does not disadvantage farmers as we move forward. How do you look upon carbon markets and these potential revenue streams for farmers that we hear about as we move to these climate uh, opportunities. Uh, do you see that as a real positive for agriculture moving forward, or do you have reservations? Well, I think some of both. I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's reasonable to be a little worried about might be coming down the pike. At the same time, when you look at, and, and I would encourage farmers to take a look at this, when you look at all of these big global corporations making climate pledges, right? You know, Nestle talking about a carbon-free cup of coffee, Amazon talking about, you know, zero uh, uh, carbon footprint. The only way they're going to get there is by buying carbon offsets. And who are they going to buy them from? I think farmers have a good opportunity here. And, and it might take some, some thought and some process, and some of these markets are in their infancy, right? We understand that. But, but I think there's a pretty good opportunity for farmers to get some of this from, uh, out of the market because the, the technology today says that you're sequestering a lot of carbon out there. And corporations that are making these big pledges are going to need that. And so I think it's a good opportunity. Very good. Good to talk with you, Todd. Thank you. Take care, and we'll we'll talk again soon. You bet, Mike. Thanks. Todd Van Hoos, President and CEO of the Farm Credit Council. Interesting thoughts on where we're at with the uh, ag economy right now. Where are we in our relationship, trade relationship with China? They're buying a lot. Any areas of concern? And where do we go in the future with China? We'll get the thoughts uh, about those topics from Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Up next, stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. 
You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. All three crop markets other than soybeans have fallen below the Green Line 20-day moving average. They have officially moved into a downtrend after hitting their price peaks last week. The U.S. winter wheat belt had widespread rains last week and looks wet again this week. Minneapolis wheat was pressured overnight due to the rain expected later this week through the dry northern plains and Canadian wheat belt. The U.S. forecast through the end of the month has above normal precipitation for much of the wheat and corn belts. Brazil has some rain in their forecast later this week and next week. On the Board of Trade, July corn trading eight cents higher at 6.52. The September contract up four and a half cent at 5.67 and a half cent. For soybeans, the July contract trading 11 cents higher at 15.97 and a fraction. The August contract up six and three quarters at 15.34 and a quarter. For wheats, the Chicago wheat July contract trading four and a half cent lower at 7.02 and three quarters. Kansas City wheat July down five and three quarters at 6.52. Minneapolis spring wheat July down 25 and three quarters at 7.15. Last week's closing in the livestock complex did not paint a positive picture for this week with the exception of feeder cattle. Otherwise, some of the fundamentals for both cattle and hogs had turned more bearish. Hogs have the benefit of tighter supplies that could provide support, but such is not the case for cattle. August live cattle trading two cents lower at 118.82. The October contract trading 32 cents higher at 123.57. For feeder cattle, the August contract a dollar 15 higher at 152.35. The September contract a dollar 10 higher at 153.77. In lean hogs, the July contract up 57 at 109.57. The August contract up 87 at 105.65. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Egg Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
Well, each day seems to bring news of another China purchase of U.S. grain. Uh, let's talk about it with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President, the U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, good to talk with you again. So, uh, at least in the ag world, that that's good news. Anything behind the scenes going on we should be aware of? Any uh, red flags or areas of concern about the relationship to trading between the U.S. and China? Mike, I think the relationship, the trading relationship between the U.S. and China continues to, to limp along as it did from the previous administration. Uh, we have seen a major rebound in good exports to China over the, the last year. The most recent export data was from 2020. And we saw that exports grew 18% from a decade low in 2019. Now, obviously, a big part of that was because of the removal of some of the tariffs and the cessation of some of the trade war. But overall, we're, we're seeing positive purchases from China. I, I think one of the questions that we have in our interactions with the U.S. government is would China have made these purchases without the trade deal that was negotiated between the two sides? And I think there's some in the, the Department of Agriculture in particular that are having that, that believe maybe they would have. So, you know, overall, I think the, the trading numbers look good and the relationship continues on a, a fairly moderately positive trajectory. Yeah, that's the question I've been asking and wondering about these purchases which China keeps making of our grain. Uh, would they have done that even without the phase one trade deal or did the phase one trade deal make that make it easier for them to do that? Or I, I just don't get the sense that they're trying to meet commitments of phase one that they're buying more because they, they feel they need it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Mike. And, and what we've seen is that many of the export numbers from 2018 were just now getting back to those those levels. Now, in some of the areas, the phase one trade deal did make some significant progress, particularly in what we call the non-tariff barriers or the restrictions on rectopamine and, and certain products in the U.S. and the restrictions on U.S. poultry and restrictions on U.S. beef. Those were lifted, which allowed uh, effectively brand new market opportunities for the first time in, in a decade for many of these products. Products. That obviously came about as a result of the successful negotiation of the phase one trade deal. But if we look at some of the other areas like oil seeds or corn, I think many believe that China is probably just making those purchases because they have the demand. Their hog population is coming back and, and they, they frankly just, just need the corn for feed. We're talking with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. I guess uh, a lot of farmers, especially right now, saying, well, we're, we don't care which it is, whether they're meeting the phase one trade deal or they're just needing it. We're just glad they're buying. But uh, trying to look at the legs of this, uh, uh, of this situation, are they going to keep doing it? Uh, is this just a short-term situation? Uh, so that's why we look at the overall relationship. From a non-ag standpoint, Jake, what are you seeing as far as business between the two countries? Uh, from a non-ag standpoint, at least from an export perspective, things go fairly well across the board. Semiconductors are way up over the last year. That's a big export product of Idaho and Oregon. You know, one of the areas that's maybe a little less positive is in aircraft exports. Uh, the deterioration of the relationship at the end of the Trump administration has meant that China hasn't been making the big airline purchases that they traditionally make from the United States. And, and as a result, that's really hit some of the, the manufacturing states that rely on that, like, like South Carolina. Uh, when we talk to our member companies that are in China, they tell us that on the ground, things are effectively back to normal. COVID-19 is not really affecting domestic consumption. Most American companies are in China for China, so they're making things in China to sell to Chinese citizens. And because their economy is effectively up and running, 
business is going pretty well. And because we don't have the same day-to-day really acerbic comments and exchanges between the U.S. and China, there's less of that pressure on business uh, that, that really began to affect folks in the last year of the Trump administration. What's the overall trade balance or imbalance as far as how much we sell China overall, not just agriculture, but overall as compared to what we buy from them? So last year we sold $123 billion of goods to China and something like $50 billion in services. I think we purchased somewhere in the $600 billion. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but we run a significant trade deficit with China. People like us, the U.S.-China Business Council, we don't feel like the trade deficit is the best metric for assessing the health of the overall relationship. Uh, but we, we, there's a significant trade deficit that the U.S. and China have. And frankly, it's, it's larger today than it was four years ago. Even larger, even with all the purchases. I mean, again, we focus on the ag purchases, which we're, we talk a lot about. But overall, the imbalance is even greater than it was four years ago. That's right. Talking with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. All right, Jake, I saw something about uh, China in talks to perhaps join TPP. Of course, the U.S. opted out of being part of TPP. If China gets into that trade group, where does that leave the U.S.? It's a great question, and and I think it's something that gives a little bit of anxiety to the new administration. It was raised during the Alaska meetings that the U.S. and China had a a few months ago, and I think the question is, just as you posed, China just signed a new trade deal called the Regional Cooperation Economic Partnership, RCEP. If if it joins TPP, that would create a significant trade pact with with a number of countries in the region as well. As you know, the United States doesn't have a ton of appetite today for signing new trade agreements. There's a feeling that maybe they haven't been good for American workers. Uh, But all that said, my feeling, Mike, is that the high standards that TPP would require of China, that there be new intellectual property rights protections, that data flow and cross-border data restrictions be uh, removed, that state-owned enterprises and their roles in the in, in the economy that those be addressed i'm not sure that reasonable people believe china can reach those high standards and join the agreement at least today but if they did at least from the, the structural change that would be good for all companies that operate in the market and perhaps the u.s and china can find some kind of agreement uh, where china can raise its standards join tpp the u.s can join but it's going to be a really bumpy road here with our own domestic politics for the next several years, frankly. That's interesting. You you think it would be hard for China to meet those standards that would be required? Um, I guess part of me is skeptical, says, well, they'd say they would, but then, you know, a few years into it, you'd find out they still hadn't. Uh, but uh, what do you, you, th- you think, how, what odds would you put on it, the chances of them actually getting into TPP? I'd give it a 5% chance. Really? That low? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that, I think it's it's an interesting idea, and I think it's something that they're using now as a, as a foil against the United States. Generally, less pro-trade stance that we've seen over the last number of years. So it positions China globally to be perceived as a champion of the liberal economic order and trying to drive forward these new agreements. I don't think that it can meet the standards that are set out in TPP, um, but 
And as a result, I think the likelihood of them actually moving forward with something and joining the agreement are, are low. Hmm. Um, it's I, I made the comment several times. It seems like we don't hear much yet from this administration on trade in general. Now, there's some USMCA talks going on this week, so maybe we'll start hearing a little bit more. But in general, we haven't heard much. What are you hearing or seeing behind the scenes as far as this administration reaching out and dealing with with China. Is there much going on that you know of? Yes. Well, they, they continue to conduct their strategic review of the U.S.-China relationship, looking at all of the Trump administration policies focused on China. And, and what's interesting is that we have not seen a single Trump administration policy rolled back, uh, a Trump administration China policy rolled back by the new administration. So effectively, they're recognizing the challenges the previous administration highlighted and continuing to implement those. Um, what we understand is exactly what you said. The commercial relationship is frankly just not a priority. They're much more concerned about the national security dynamics between the U.S. and China. And while the commercial relationship has traditionally been the ballast of the overall relationship, it doesn't play that same role today. And that's because of the last four years, but it's also because of the concerns the new administration has as well. That is very interesting because this administration is seemingly, uh, from day one, uh, tried to reverse everything they could from the Trump administration. But when it comes to China trade policies, they've not changed anything, is what you're saying. Not a single policy has been rolled back. There have been a few that have been overturned by the courts, and those have been slightly adjusted. But at least to date, the major policies, the things that many in the business community expected the administration to address or roll back, uh, have continued to pace. Yeah, that is, that is very interesting. And um, we'll see if that continues. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think that will continue, or do you see big changes coming? I think that we're likely to see this continue at least through the summer from what we understand in our sources and government that perhaps we'll begin to see some commercial negotiations in the fall uh, at the end of the phase uh, one agreement timeline, which is December 31st this year. Uh, that agreement goes away. So there needs to be something that replaces it. And we can assume that maybe some discussions will begin over the next few months and we may begin to see some public announcements in the fall. So it's going to take some time. And uh, as I said, the commercial relationship is, uh, frankly, a lower priority. Hmm. Well, Jake, thanks a lot. You give us such great perspective on all this uh, relationship with China, and I know you're moving on to other things. We wish you the very best, and thanks for taking time to, to join us uh, here in the last uh, few months. We really appreciate your help. Thank you. Thank you. Wish you the best. Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Interesting thoughts on the U.S.-China trade relationship. Well, up next, we'll get a wheat crop update. Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat, joins us next on AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm -mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. 
Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Our guest today is Will Stafford, CHS Washington representative, here to discuss the latest agriculture legislation moving through the Capitol. All right, Will, what do farmers need to know about the Growing Climate Solutions Act? The Growing Climate Solutions Act is a piece of legislation that is designed to make it easier for farmers to participate in carbon markets, which are obviously a hot topic around agriculture these days. It also aims to add transparency and certainty to carbon markets for farmers. Uh, specifically, it directs USDA to provide technical assistance to farmers who are transitioning to carbon smart practices, as well as directs USDA to certify third-party verification services. Uh, these third-party en entities certified under the program will be able to claim a USDA-certified status, so producers will know they're working with legitimate providers. But we should point out the bill was also introduced last year, so what's different about this version? One major difference in this bill versus last year's bill is that it received support from the top Republican senator on the Agriculture Committee, John Bozeman from Arkansas. And he put in a he pushed for a portion of the bill that would require USDA to ensure technical assistance providers and those third party verifiers uh, provide farmers with realistic cost and revenue estimates. The USDA-approved technical assistance providers also would be charged with helping farmers, ranchers, and foresters receive a fair distribution of the revenue derived from the sale of carbon credits. Um, in addition, USDA must also establish an advisory board to advise the Secretary on carbon markets in the implementation of the bill. Um, under this year's bill, as opposed to last year's bill, a majority of that board will have to actually be farmers. That's Will Stafford, CHS Washington representative. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from CHS at cooperativeownership.com. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. And we're joined now by Maria Zeba. She is the Assistant Vice President, International Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. I want to focus on 
gaining more market access, more market share in Vietnam. What's the challenge? What's the issue here? Tariffs? It's partly tariffs, and 72 members of Congress sent a letter to Ambassador Thai last week, and they agree with us that tariffs are too high, and we need a level playing field, and we also need to address some non-tariff barriers. How big a market could that potentially be for U.S. pork producers? Well, Vietnam consumes more pork than Mexico and about 57 pounds of pork per year per citizen. So we can certainly see this market going from a $54 million market to something similar to to the Mexican market, which last year we exported $1.2 billion. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Time to check in with Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat. Justin, is the wheat tour underway? Uh, hey, Mike, good morning. Good to talk with you. It is day one of the hard, uh, Wheat Quality Council Hard and Red Winter Wheat Tour. Uh, we're just getting started. All right, so you're going to be covering a lot of ground. Uh, give us an idea what uh, you're seeing uh, and hearing about already and uh, recent uh, weather conditions that uh, are, I guess I'm going to say any mud on the boots yet? I think it's going to be uh, one of those trips that, that you're going to have butt on your boots the whole week, and that's a that's a good thing, mm-hmm. uh, considering yeah. how, how dry things have been, Mike. You know, it's a good thing to be doing the wheat tour. So just as you know, to look back, being able to uh, being able to be in person and doing the wheat tour again uh, after last year, you know, it was the first time in 40 years that the wheat tour had been canceled. Uh, so we had to do a virtual wheat tour last year. Uh, and so having our first meeting last night, we're getting everybody back together. We've got about uh, a little over 40 uh, crop scouts that are signed up and part of the week tour this year. Just getting everybody back in person, being able to meet last night, talking about the routes everybody's going to be on today and, and what we're going to be seeing and how the formula we're going to use. Uh, it's just uh, it, it felt somewhat more like normal. And uh, to, to do that, uh, it's good to, good to be out uh, doing the week tour. But, yeah, the wheat, uh, actually, Mike, you know, you and I talked, uh, it's been a roller coaster ride for this uh, winter wheat crop with uh, dry conditions in the fall. Uh, there's extreme cold temperatures that we had, uh, record cold temperatures in February. Uh, then we had uh, really uh, good moisture in March, uh, but then dry conditions again, uh, just like the Dakotas were having during April. Uh, so everybody was a little unsure what this crop was going to look like, but uh, getting out there now just with the recent rains we had over the weekend, uh, I think the early indications are this crop has really responded well uh, and looks pretty good from uh, uh, from the recent moisture that we just had as, as we're getting started here, Mike. Well, it's been a roller coaster ride, and we kind of joke and kid each other that every time I call you, it's probably because there's a problem somewhere. But actually, uh, <laughs> this time we're talking with, as you said, more promising conditions. You have moisture. Anytime you can get some mud on your boots, that's a good thing, right? Uh, especially oh. when you're used to usually dealing with such dry conditions. Uh, that, that's absolutely the case. With, you know, we had such a dry April that there was. You know, there's there's some there's some wheat that's in western Kansas, eastern Colorado, Panhandle, Oklahoma, Texas, 
that uh, the, the rain's coming just a little too late for it, unfortunately. But uh, there are uh, a lot, a lot of the wheat uh, was at a, a pretty important time, or it's in the boot, or just starting to head. Uh, we're in some fields this morning that are flowering, and, and we had uh, just in the last uh, last four or five days, there's been one to one, uh, an inch and a half to five inches. A lot of it localized, but there's been a little bit for everybody uh, across the state of Kansas just here the last four or five days, and, and uh, it, it was it's really what this crop was needing. Now that moisture, we what a lot of the crops got, and I think a theme that's going to be from this wheat tour this year, Mike, is. Uh, uh, with the moisture, we've had cooler temperatures. The crops starting to look a little bit better. So USDA had mass, uh, mass had uh, the Kansas crop at about 48 bushels per acre. I think that's probably going to be pretty in line. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe even a little bit better with some of the reports that come out today. But those conditions that have been good for yield, uh, they've also been really good for uh, some disease problems. And so I think a theme that's going to come out of this tour and probably some things that uh, some of the northern wheat producers want to kind of have on their radar is there is a lot of stripefest showing up in this crop in the central corridor, the hardwood winter wheat belt, that potentially is going to continue to move north. But with the crop prices where we're at, with the yield potential now that we've got some moisture, there's a little more optimism about this crop. Uh, we're seeing a lot of fungicide being applied just today. Uh, as we're out here just to try to combat some of this dry breast that's showing up. Well, wheat is just a, an amazing crop, such a hardy crop that has to go through so much. And it seems like Mother Nature is throwing a little bit of everything at this crop. Well, it, yeah, that, there's, you're right. It's, it's job security for me to be able to talk to you, Mike, because we do seem to talk whenever it's a freeze event or the drought conditions or all the challenges that the wheat crop has had. Uh, you know, and, and what what they'll say tonight, right? That week to a wrap up is, uh, you know, when this is what the yield is—a snapshot in time where we're at today. And a lot of people are going to probably have reports how the wheat crop looks pretty good with pretty good potential. Uh, but the old adage with wheat uh, is, there's a lot of things that can happen to wheat from this point to harvest, and most of them aren't good. <laughs> so I think we're kind of pinpointing where the crop is right now with uh, with the yield potential that it has. Uh, but uh, I think it's good to see that there is still is a, there's a ways to go before we get to harvest, especially with this crop right now. Uh, it, it is because of the cooler weather we've had, the wet weather we've had, the dry conditions we had prior to uh, the, this month. Uh, the crop is about a about a week to ten days behind. Uh, so we are anticipating maybe a, late, a little bit later start to harvest this year. Uh, maybe that gives us a little bit longer fill time, but uh, a lot of it depends on the kind of weather we get from this point forward to harvest to see, uh, see what type of yields are actually realized. Yep, not a done deal yet by any means. Uh, so um, how much ground are you going to cover today? What's your route that you'll be on? Well, we go, uh, well, uh, we, the tour starts off in, Man- in Manhattan. Uh, we spend day one, if you think of Manhattan, in kind of the eastern part of Kansas. We'll spend day one going through the northern uh, the northern tier uh, counties, uh, one route goes up into Nebraska, uh, and we'll go out to northwest Kansas and end up in, in Colby tonight. And so that's roughly about a 300-mile trip, I guess, <laughs> uh, when you know, it's all said and done, but uh, trying to get around 15 to 18 field stops uh, along the way. Uh, and then uh, day two, uh, tomorrow, the group will go from Colby, which is in northwest Kansas, down to uh, uh, down to the southwest corner of Kansas and then back over uh, to the east and end up in the south-central part of Kansas in, in Wichita. And then the day two wrap-up will be in Wichita. And then day three on Thursdays when the tour wraps up, we'll 
uh, the group will go from Wichita back up to Manhattan, and that's when the, uh, the Wee Tour will announce their final number and, and wrap things up. So it's going to be a full week across the Mike. Right? Yeah, a lot of ground to cover. Safe travels to you, Justin. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk again uh, and try to get the final results. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Good to talk to you, Mike. Thank you. Take care. Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat, as uh, the Kansas Wheat Tour getting underway today. That wraps it up. Thank you for joining us. Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines.